Well, when you think of the greatest women of faith in the Bible, what names come to your mind? The Bible is remarkable in such that in the ancient world where women were very much regarded as second-class citizens, Scripture frequently portrays their excellent worth. Recorded are many examples of godly women who live lives of great faith worth emulating. So you may think of Ruth, known for her faith in God and, and Naomi as well. Or Esther, who went from being an orphan to queen and was used by God to save her people. Then there was Hannah, who although barren, trusted in the Lord and received a child of, of promise. The New Testament tells us of Mary and Martha, a pair of sisters known for their love and devotion to the Lord. And so many more names of faithful women could be added to this list. But I wonder, as you think of these women, did the name of Mary, the mother of Jesus, come to your mind? Is that how you think of Mary, as a woman of great faith? I find that Mary often gets overlooked in that list because her faith is overshadowed by the miraculous birth of Jesus. But I would argue that among the women of the Bible, Mary is perhaps the greatest example of faith, trusting in the promises of God. Now, I know that we Protestants don't like talking about Mary too much. We don't want to exalt her in any way. This is uh, an appropriate reaction to the many abuses of the Catholic Church, which has venerated Mary and made her an object of worship. I mean, they won't say that directly, but their idolatry concerning Mary abounds. The doctrine of Mary has to be one of the greatest falsehoods of the Catholic Church. It's one of the main, many reasons we are Protestants and not Catholics. We, like the Reformers, are protesting against their false beliefs and adulterations of the Word of God. And foremost would be, I think, the Mariology, their doctrine of Mary. Just by way of introduction, do you know what the Catholic Church actually teaches about Mary? In case you have no idea what I'm talking about, let me just tell you a little bit about what they believe. You'll see how this ties in, so just humor me for a bit. Thankfully, they affirm the virgin birth. We do as well, that Mary conceived Christ as a virgin, and that's good. We agree. That's pretty much where our agreement would end. The Catholic Church has also affirmed four dogmas concerning Mary. That's like what they describe their articles of faith, essential beliefs for being a Catholic. The first is her status as the mother of God. It's not enough to say she's the mother of the Son of God made man. But since Christ is fully God, they insist on calling her the mother of God. The second dogma is her perpetual virginity. They believe that not only was Mary a virgin before giving birth to Jesus, but she remained a virgin forever. After as well, of course. Never mind the fact that Scripture mentions the brothers and sisters of Jesus several times. They must have come from somewhere else because she was perpetually a virgin. The third dogma is called the Immaculate Conception. A lot of people confuse this with the virgin birth, but it's actually different. It relates to the conception of Mary in her mother's womb. For Mary to give birth to the sinless Son of God, how could she if she was stained by original sin? So they think she wasn't. They believe that Mary herself was conceived in her mother's womb without sin, without the stain of original sin. She too was sinless. How else could she give birth to the sinless Son of God? kind of makes you wonder, though, if Mary had to be sinless to give birth to a sinless Jesus, didn't her mother have to be sinless, too, to give birth to her? But they don't talk about that. And finally, there's a fourth dogma. It's called the Assumption into Heaven. Here, Catholics teach that Mary joins the ranks of Enoch and Elijah, and she was directly taken to heaven, body and soul complete. The Catholic Catechism states, quote, The Immaculate Virgin preserved free from all stain of original sin, when the course of her earthly life was finished, was taken up 
body and soul into heavenly glory and exalted by the Lord as queen over all things, end quote. It ties into how Catholics refer to Mary as the queen of heaven. Now, for those of you here and you're raised in a Catholic background, you've heard this stuff before. For many of you, though, you became a Christian, you had no Catholic background, and that's all probably brand new to you. And you know why that is? It's because it's not taught anywhere in the Bible. If all you did was read the Bible, you would never hear about any of that. It's not even hinted at. Rather, all this teaching was made up and declared to be true by the Catholic magisterium. So Mary was declared to be the mother of God at the Council of Ephesus in 431 A.D. She was declared to be a perpetual virgin at the Council of Constantinople in 531 the Immaculate Conception was declared by Pope Pius IX in 1854, and it wasn't until 1950 that Pope Pius XII declared Mary's assumption into heaven. Of course, this gets into the, the basic division between Catholics and Protestants. It's What's your source of authority? Is it Scripture alone or Scripture plus church tradition? In Catholics, it's both. They believe church tradition is infallible. Popes are infallible. Church councils, church fathers are infallible. But for us, it's crystal clear, only God's word is infallible. Only scripture is inspired and inerrant and authoritative for truth. And so we base our beliefs on scripture alone. When scripture is not your sole authority, though, you can pretty much make up whatever you want. And then you don't even really need the Bible. I mean, who cares that all this teaching on Mary isn't even hinted at in the Bible some pope declared it to be true, so it must be true. What's really troubling is where they're thinking of taking Mary next. Catholics are thinking of adding a fifth dogma about Mary, namely Mary as co-redemptrix and co-mediatrix, just their fancy words for saying she's a co-redeemer and co-mediator with Christ. They don't believe she's divine, but they pretty much treat her like she is. They give her a part to play in the redemption process as the life giver to the life giver. They still believe Jesus is Savior, but they also believe that the path to Jesus goes through Mary. This plays into her role as intercessor. Yeah, I mean, sure, the Bible says Jesus is the only mediator between God and man. But they think, look, if you really want to get Christ's ear, you've got to go to his mom. That's how it works. Mary, being the perfect, sinless queen of heaven, She's seen as the, dis the dispenser of all heavenly graces. So you pray to her, and then she will pray for you to Jesus and get your prayer answered. In reality, though, did you know Catholics pray to Mary ten times more than they pray to God or Christ? And if you don't believe me, just think about the rosary. The rosary is this repetitious method of prayer using beads. I mean, you all know what it is. And in that prayer, you start with one Lord's Prayer, you then you do ten Hail Mary prayers, obviously a prayer to Mary, and that's followed by one Glory Be prayer, and then you do that all, you do the whole thing five times. So in total, you'd be praying to God and Jesus five times each, and to Mary fifty times. And then the whole prayer concludes with a prayer to Mary called the Hail Holy Queen prayer. And Catholics can say all they want that they don't worship Mary. But in Scripture, such veneration and expressions of prayer, those are express actions of worship. And the fact that Mary is never even close to exalted like this in Scripture only confirms this is idolatry. Only God is worthy of such worship, for only God is supreme. 
Only God is worthy of our prayers, our praise, our affections, our devotion. There really is only one mediator between God and man, and that is Christ Jesus. You don't need a priest. You don't need Mary. And, you know, side note, Mary's not even omniscient, so she couldn't hear your prayers anyway. The fact of the matter is, Mary is simply another sinner chosen and used by God's grace for great things. Yes, she was given a great honor to be the mother of our Lord, and praise God for that. She played a critical part in God's plan. But that was not because of her glory or merit. All glory belongs to Christ. And Mary herself needed and enjoyed the same redemption from her son as all of us. So like I said, these are just some of the reasons we are not Catholics this morning. We can't stomach these false teachings on Mary. But at the same time, all that being said, I also find that some Protestants, they, they take that pendulum and they swing to the exact opposite side and it leads them to totally discount Mary. Forget about Mary, even to disparage Mary, not important at all. But that's a mistake, because Mary is included in Scripture for a reason. And partly, she's presented to us as a chief example of humble faith. No, she's never presented as some sinless, near-divine figure, greater than all the angels. Rather, she's presented as a model of faith, and she should be included as one of those inspired pictures of faith in Scripture. There is, in fact, much to learn from her great faith. And that's what I want us to focus on this morning for our our Christmas sermon. I want to put Mary in her proper perspective. This does not include worshiping her, but it does include following in the footsteps of her faith in her God and her Son. So why don't you open your Bibles again to Luke chapter 1. That's where we'll be this morning. Luke chapter 1. Luke 1 tells us of the angel's announcement to Mary of the birth of Jesus. You know that story, I'm sure. But I want to back it up even further because if you really want to learn about the faith of Mary, you have to start with Zacharias. And you'll see how as as we get going. We're covering a lot of ground. So join me starting in verse 5. Luke 1, verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there's a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. So as Luke begins his gospel, we're first introduced to this couple, Zacharias, Elizabeth, a pair of devout, holy Israelites, walking blamelessly in the Lord's ways. Zacharias was even a priest, but, verse 7, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and they both were advanced in years. So here's the conflict in their lives. It reminds you of Sarah and Abraham. They just made it through life, and and they tried, but they just couldn't conceive. It just never happened for them. But you probably know that's going to change. You you know the story, I'm sure. Verse 8, Now it happened while he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, According to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. So you know a little bit of background. This is quite remarkable. 
all the priests of Israel at the time, they were divided into 24 groups or divisions, and then each division served in the temple for one week, twice a year. So this is his week. But even more so, any given priest could only offer incense in the temple once in his lifetime because there are so many priests. That's why they're choosing by lot who gets the honor of going in the temple this year and offering incense by the altar. Then what do you know? Today, Zacharias was chosen, and he he gets the privilege of going into the temple, actually going inside and offering this incense. This would have been the pinnacle of his priestly career. This was a a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, and given what happens next, it was really a a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Verse 11, it says, And an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right, of the altar of incense. Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel and fear gripped him. So talk about an unexpected turn of events. I know this is his first time in the temple, but he surely knows that's not normal. Like that's not supposed to be there, right? That's not a guy. This angel appears out of nowhere right next to the altar of incense. Zacharias responds like most people would and have in scripture when they saw an angel and he's he's afraid which explains the angel's response back to him, verse 13. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. So so think about this one. On the one day Zacharias gets chosen to offer the incense, we actually learn he snuck in a little prayer for a child. While he was in the temple offering that the regular prayers, the prescribed prayers, he snuck in his own prayer for a child. He was still holding out hope, still praying. God heard that prayer. God answered that prayer immediately, dispatched this angel to visit him. And God's response is that he would indeed have a child, a very special child. This child would not be the Messiah, but he would be the forerunner to the Messiah. This is the birth of John the Baptist. Verse 14, the angel says, You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous, so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. This is stunning when you think about it. I mean, just imagine if this were you. You're advanced in years. You never had a kid. You always wanted a kid. You just couldn't conceive. And even though, even still, you're still praying for a child. The Lord hears your prayer, sends an angel to visit you, and the angel says to you, Hey, I've got good news. The Lord has heard your prayer. And you're going to have a child. And you will be richly blessed by this child. He will be great. He'll lead God's people in a spiritual revival. And he will prepare the way for the Lord. If that were you, how would you respond to that news? I mean, you would celebrate. Maybe if you're really old, you're like, I don't really want a kid. But you would celebrate. You would rejoice. You would thank God. How does Zacharias respond to this news? He doubts. Verse 18, Zechariah said to the angel, How will I know this for certain? 
for I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And do you see the, the little bit of doubt mixed into his response? He knows this is an angel. He knows he just prayed for a child. He knows this is an answer to that prayer request. But he does want to get up his hopes, we assume. I mean, for decades they'd been living with this false hope of having a child that never happened. Surely there's a lot of heartbreak. Didn't want to get his hopes up again for another child that's not going to be there. In a way, we can understand his response. Indeed, they were older, and it's not likely for them to conceive. But at the same time, this was a message from God by an angel. And it's not like God had never done this before. I mean, Sarah and Abraham, again, God had done something like this before. So shouldn't this righteous priest have more faith than this? Therefore, verse 19, the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and I've been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. I love this response. First, the angel pretty much says, like, do you know who I am? Like, I'm Gabriel. I'm one of the top angels. I stand in the very presence of God. I think I know what I'm talking about. Zacharias had every reason to believe. What more of a sign did he need than an angel just showing up out of nowhere announcing his prayer request had been answered. But because of his doubt, he would get a sign the hard way. Verse 20, the angel continues and says, And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. Thankfully, God's promise is unconditional. His promise of John and the blessing was not conditioned upon Zacharias's goodness or merit or even faith or anything. So God did not revoke his promise because of Zacharias's doubt. God would show himself to be true. And in a, in a massive way, through Zacharias, he was going to prove the hard way his word is going to come true. And it was. Let's keep going. Verse 21. The people were waiting for Zacharias and were wondering at his delay in the temple. But when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. When the days of his priestly service were ended, he went back home. After these days, Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant. And she kept herself in seclusion for five months, saying, This is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace among men. Zacharias and his wife, they return home to the hill country of Judea after his week is up. Only now he's mute, and he will remain mute the whole pregnancy. I, I bet he doesn't doubt anymore. God is already making good on his word. Shortly they, they conceive. Elizabeth, his wife, gets pregnant, and already she rejoices because the Lord has taken away the reproach of her barrenness. Already they're experiencing some of the joy the angel said they would at this birth. So that's it. That's the announcement to Zacharias of the birth of John the Baptist. Now, what does all this have to do with Mary? Well, again, you'll see. You've got to hang in there. We're going to keep going in the text. I told you a lot of ground to cover. We're going to keep going here because next we're introduced to Mary. And this is the familiar part 
I'm sure to you, where the angel announces the birth of Christ. So let's keep going and look at now verse 26. It says, Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. This part of the story is so much more familiar to us. Six months after speaking to Zacharias, Gabriel is dispatched yet again, this time to a a lowly girl in Nazareth. She's engaged, and surely she's very excited for the next stage of her life, about to get married, maybe leave town, who knows, just looking forward to the, the next chapter of her life. But little did she know that her life was about to change forever in an unimaginable way. Just imagine your young woman engaged, ready to be married. and Think about how her life is going to be completely turned upside down. You all know the story. Verse 28, it's talking about the angel and says, And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement. I kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. I love this part too. Now, admittedly, Gabriel's appearance to Mary it was less startling than his appearance to Zacharias. To Zacharias, in the temple, he, j- he just appeared out of thin air next to the altar in the temple. That's a very supernatural appearance. To Mary, we get the impression he just kind of walks in her house. And, you know, angels actually typically have the form appearance of a man, so... She may have thought there's just a guy walking into her house. What's clear is she was less startled by his appearance and more startled by what he says, his greeting. He says, greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. First off, that term favored one, it means endowed with grace. So we can say Mary, from the beginning, is not someone who gives out grace but someone who receives grace, just like the rest of us. So she's not special. But she was taken aback because she did not think of herself as favored in any way. I I imagine she thought in her mind, like, wait, did you have the right house? Like, you know who you're talking to. I'm not favored by the Lord. I I don't know what you're talking about. That's because, if you know, Mary was extremely poor and destitute. We know this because after Jesus was born and they go to dedicate him at the temple, they offer the cheapest offering available of two turtle doves. It was the offering reserved for the poorest of the poor. They, they don't have money. Also, she lived in Nazareth, if you know a thing or two. that's like a, It was like the backwoods podunk trailer town. It was just a, no, a nothing town. No, no one knew about it. No one cared about it. So Mary was not living a, a privileged life. She knew nothing of this favor which the angel speaks, but she's about to. Verse 30, And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. And he will be great, and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Now, first off, let me make a side note. 
we know this angel's announcement to Mary. As we think about it, what makes Mary special here? Mary's special because God chose her. But God did not choose her because she was special. You get the difference? In reality, none of us are special. Sorry to burst your bubble. We're all sinners. None of us is worthy of being chosen by God for anything. But that's the whole point. His redemption is by grace, like what you don't deserve. It's not by merit, not by works, not by your goodness. There are none good, Scripture says. But that's the whole point. It's by grace. And so we thank God for his grace. He chose Mary just by his grace. That's it. And for Mary, God chose her to bear the Messiah. Now, although we don't have time to study this, the angel's announcement in this verse, these verses, it's so packaged with all these messianic prophecies and fulfillment, covenant terminology, all all this good stuff. And Mary picked up on it. We, We understand later she had some understanding that this child was not just a kid, he was the promised one. She had some understanding this was to be the Messiah. This was to be no ordinary child and no ordinary birth. Speaking of, Mary understood that the angel was announcing to her that she was going to get pregnant right now. And that's a problem she understood because she was a virgin. This explains her response. Verse 34. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? And just just stop there. Did you notice already the difference between her response and Zacharias's response? His was clearly laced for doubt. He asked for a sign. Mary is simply inquisitive. Zacharias questioned the truth of the angel's revelation. Mary merely wonders at the process. How can this be? It's a good question because, after all, she is a virgin and that's not how conception works. But you know, again, how this plays out. Verse 35. The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative, Elizabeth, has also conceived a son in her old age, And she who was called barren is now in her sixth month, for nothing will be impossible with God. Here is the cherished promise of the virgin birth. This child will be so special, he won't even have a human father. God himself will be the father, and that's why he will be conceived by the Holy Spirit. This is the mystery of the incarnation, where God the Son took on a human nature and came to earth. Therefore, He would not only be a son of David, he would also be a son of God. True, this is humanly impossible, but for God, nothing is impossible. He already opened the womb of Elizabeth. For God, this is no harder. God knows no limits. Now, I know we've been rushing over a lot of good stuff in this passage, but our goal this whole time has been to get to Mary's response. After this profound, staggering announcement by the angel of the virgin birth, of the divine Messiah, how will she respond to this? Now she's taking it all in. Okay, he answered a question. How will she respond? This is where we're aiming at, verse 38. And Mary said, Behold, the bondslave of the Lord, 
may it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. And that's it. Now this is truly amazing. Notice, there's no doubt, only faith. There's no rejection, only acceptance. There's no refusal, only service. She asks for no sign, but immediately submits herself to the revealed will of God. Mary confesses she's merely a slave of the Lord. That's literally the word she uses. She is a slave of the Lord. She views her will, her desires, her plans for her life as secondary to God's will, God's desires, God's plan for her life. And when she finds out, she accepts it with a humble faith. And this is why I'm telling you, this is one of the greatest responses of faith in all Scripture. This becomes all the more apparent when you contrast Mary's response with Zacharias's response. And now you see why I wanted to start with Zacharias. I actually think Luke purposely sets up and contrasts Mary and, and Zacharias in their response to the angelic announcement, which only highlights Mary's faith. Just think about how different these two people were. Zacharias was a priest. Mary was a lowly peasant girl. Zacharias resided, or at least visited and served in Jerusalem, the holy city. Mary, Nazareth, in a backwards town. Zacharias had the rare privilege of entering the temple. Mary would never set foot in the temple. She wasn't even allowed being a woman. Further, Zacharias received a clearly supernatural appearance. When the angel just pops up out of thin air, he's answering a specific prayer request. He knew this was a divine messenger. And you know that the promise to Zacharias was amazing, but you know it's doable for an elderly couple to get pregnant. But just think about Mary. She did not have an overwhelming supernatural experience. He just walks into her house. Also, she wasn't praying for this. She wasn't expecting anything from the Lord. And furthermore, the promise given to her of the virgin birth, that's impossible. And so you put all this together, we expect Mary to be the one doubting, asking for a sign. And Zacharias, the righteous, blameless priest, to accept by faith. I mean, come on, who's going to believe a virgin birth? For an elderly couple to get pregnant, it's within the realm of possibility, but the promise to Mary is completely impossible. Everything says that Zacharias, the priest, should have responded in faith, yet he's the one who doubts, while Mary just accepts the will of the Lord, no matter how impossible it sounds, with a humble faith. She truly is the slave of the Lord. And with the servant's heart, she's ready to accept the Lord's will and and just be used in the Lord's plan. And by the way, keep in mind, Mary had a lot more to lose. Zacharias, nothing to lose, only gain in his promise. Mary had a lot to lose. To get pregnant, out of wedlock. I mean, first off, no one's going to believe the virgin birth story. So she's going to be shunned. Joseph, he's not going to believe. He's going to send her away. And we know the angel took care of that, but she didn't know that yet. And also, getting pregnant before marriage, outside of marriage, someone might assume she committed adultery. That comes with the death penalty back then. And we we don't know if this all ran through her mind at the time, but it doesn't matter because either way, in the moment and afterward, she just fully embraced God's will for her life and trusted him 
to take care of her while he fulfilled his promises. So this is why we can justly see Mary, not as an object of worship, but as a supreme example of faith. In all of scripture, she may rank as one of the greatest examples of faith just because of the nature of the promise given to her. It's not easy to believe. What did God promise Abraham? You're going to have many descendants. Okay, yeah, we can see how that could happen. What did God promise Moses? You'll lead the people out of Egypt. That's pretty hard, but there's a way that could work out. God promised David when he was a little boy, you will be king. Okay, there's a path to that. But this promise to Mary, virgin birth of the divine Messiah, makes no sense. It's not possible. But she believed, didn't even flinch. She just accepted it as as the will of the Lord. (coughs) Excuse me. As we reflect on the faith of Mary uh, and her trust in all of God's promises, it just leaves us now one question. Namely, what about you? Do you believe God's word, God's promises by that same faith? Will you be like Mary and take God at his word? The Lord has announced to you this morning a message of good news. And it's not about Mary. It's about her son, Christ. He is the good news that God, knowing this is a fallen world lost in sin, that there are none good, not even one. There are none who have any merit to stand before him. All are lost in desperate need of salvation. God, knowing that, provided a way of escape, provided redemption. And that's found in his son and his son alone. God sent his son Jesus to take on human flesh, be born of a virgin, to live a perfect life. And he did that. Yet his life had one destination, and that is the cross. Jesus was truly born to die. But just as his was no ordinary birth, his was no ordinary death. It was an atoning death. For on the cross, Jesus was paying the penalty for all of our sins. God placed on him all of his holy wrath toward our sin. And Jesus, like this huge cavern, just swallowed it up such that there's none left. His cry on the cross was, it is finished, signifying the debt, your debt of sin to God had been paid in full. There's nothing left for you to do. You, You can't do anything anyway. But by grace, he purchased for you life. Christ had to be fully human to be a substitute sacrifice for humans. That's why he had to be born of a woman. But he also had to be fully God to be an infinite payment for our infinite debt. And so he had to be born of the Holy Spirit. But that's what he accomplished. And he proved and sealed his victory over sin and Satan and death by rising from the dead on the third day. He threw open the door of salvation that all may enter in, and now he he beckons to all, I am, he says, the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Not by Mary, but by Christ. But again, I question you, will you believe? Go to him in faith. You don't need to go through Mary. You don't need to go to a priest Just go to Christ directly as your Lord and Savior. Trust Him for your salvation. 
He promises life to all who follow him with faith, the same faith as Mary, for those who would believe the impossible. I mean, just think, the virgin birth, the atoning death, the resurrection, all of these are impossible. Who would ever believe such things? And the answer is only those like Mary who are humble, who see their sin and their dependence on God for everything, who recognize that they have no merit on their own, that they're lost and need a Savior. That's who will believe. And that's the whole point. We need God's grace and mercy. And His grace and mercy are only found in Christ. Jesus said, Blessed are those who did not see and yet believed. So I pray this morning you take God at His word, trust in His promises, and receive life by faith. And if you ever need a picture of what that looks like, well, just look at Mary. I said before, she gives us uh, in Scripture an inspired picture of, of true, humble faith. And I wasn't making that up. Just to, to wrap it up here, look at the next passage, starting in verse 39. It's actually the next verse. We're just going to keep going a little bit here. Luke 1, verse 39. This is where Mary visits Elizabeth. Look at verse 39. It says, Now at this time Mary arose and went in a hurry to the hill country, to a city of Judah, and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leapt in her, leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she cried out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leapt in my womb for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. So, so get this passage. After Gabriel's message to Mary, Mary leaves and goes to see Elizabeth, her relative. Elizabeth is probably the only person who will actually believe her story of the virgin birth. And you know what? Elizabeth believes. I mean, she had her own special birth, right? She believes. And she recognizes Mary as the mother of the Lord. Now, it's true. Mary is blessed among women. We don't dispute that. The Lord graciously chose her and used her for great things and and praise him for that. But praise God for her faith. Did you catch verse 45, what Elizabeth says? She says, and blessed is she, Mary, who what? Who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. Maybe she's saying that because she's stuck with a mute husband who didn't believe right away the promise of the Lord. But she points out, she understands Mary is special because she believed because of her faith and the simple promises of God. That's it. And this is the blessing God gives to all who will believe. Blessed are those who believe that there would be a fulfillment of what God has said. That's the definition of faith, you know. That's what faith is. And I invite you and urge you this Christmas to believe in the promises of God through Christ and receive on Christmas the only gift that matters, the gift of life in his son. To close, just humor me. I promise one last passage. Just flip to Luke 11. You got to see this to to finish up. Luke 11. Just, Just turn the page. It's just such an interesting and related passage. Jesus, he's grown up ministering with his disciples. You know the drill. We have a passage. It's only found in Luke. 
It might be for a reason. We're jumping in verse 27. Luke 11, verse 27. He was doing some teaching, and it says, While Jesus was saying these things, one of the women in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. So Christ is doing some teaching in the crowd. He often does. Some people, they believe. They're taken aback by him. Here's this woman. She, she seems to believe in Christ. She's amazed by him. And so she just yells out a traditional ancient Near Eastern blessing. And they would say, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast that nursed you. Like today we would say, you know, your mother did such a good job raising you. You love someone, you proclaim a blessing on, on their mother, right? But still, this woman is blessing Mary. She's provi- pronouncing a, a blessing on Mary. And that's fine. It makes us wonder, though, how do you think Christ will respond to this? You think he'll say, oh, thank you very much. Yeah, she did a great job. What does he say? Verse 28. But he said, on the contrary, blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. Did you see how Jesus completely redirects the blessing from his mother Mary and places it on who? On all who hear the word of God and believe it. Of course, Christ loved his mother Mary. You don't doubt that. But he didn't venerate her, worship her. Who are the blessed? Who gets the blessing, the real blessing? He says it is all those who hear and who believe and who follow God. It is all those who take him at his word. Yeah, that includes Mary. It does. But I hope it also includes you. And pray this morning you do not exalt Mary in your heart, but that you do follow in her footsteps with the same trust in God's word and will and promises, the same faith in his word, apart from which no one will see the Lord. But as you do follow in faith, then you too will find the blessing given to all who hear the word of God and observe it. Let's pray. Our great God and Father, we thank you for your word this morning, ever true and convicting. We thank you for this blessed, inspired picture of faith with Mary, indeed the mother of the Lord Christ Jesus. Lord, it actually saddens us and distresses us that many have taken a human and exalted her as a divine figure to worship her, to praise her, to pray to her. Such things we can never do, Lord. We must worship you alone. But at the same time, we, we, we thank you for how you chose and, and used this true woman of God, this young lady used by, by you for great things. And what an example of faith she leaves, Lord. If only we could have that same faith, that simple, humble, childlike trust in your word, your promises. Lord, your promises are true. They they never end. You are everlastingly faithful to your word. And through Mary's son, through your son Christ, you have purchased our forgiveness and salvation. And now you promise it. You promise forgiveness of sins. You promise reconciliation. You promise eternal life to all those who will, like Mary, believe. I, I pray that is our response this morning for any who have not, that you convict their hearts right now and they come to believe in you and your son whom you have sent and receive the greatest gift this Christmas. Thank you for Christmas as we remember Christ.
and offer you our, our worship. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.